Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week uh, there's a pause in heaven. A little pause, a little, a breath. Uh, <laughs> we are between the sixth and seventh seals in the book of Revelation, and God has called a timeout. He has dispatched an angel to stop the calamities on earth so that the righteous can be sealed. It is um, a weird little reading, uh, which I guess is understated for anything in the book of Revelations, uh, mostly because it's breaking the sequence of the seven seals as they're uh, being split. Um, but it has also been incredibly generative and personally, for me, terrifying as a child. Um, sorry for the delay. I was in FlameCon in New York for a week, so I'm about a week behind, but uh, I have a little surprise for you after this episode drops, so hopefully that will make up for the delay. Um, if you haven't seen, by the way, my book has been launched. Uh, it has pre-order links everywhere. Dayspring is now officially on sale, so if you like what I'm doing here, um, guess what? I wrote it in a book. Uh, <laughs> if you type in Dayspring and my name, you will get a pre-order link either on penguinrandomhouse.ca or .com. Uh, if you type Dayspring without my name, you will get a bunch of weird Christian greeting cards. Do not buy those, please. Uh, we're working on the SEO. <laughs> okay, um, so we're in chapter 7 of the book of Revelations. And this week's reading kind of splits into two events that are actually kind of chronologically tricky to place in uh, the sequence that we've been encountering them. And this will be true in general for the rest of Revelations, actually. Uh, it is, is tempting to read Revelations and has been read as being a fully chronological sequence of events. But I think if a person is paying attention, they have to realize that time is kind of working concentrically here. Um, that is to say that the events of, for example, the seventh seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls seem to be concurrent or versions of each other, or if you are a textual scholar, perhaps even three separate runs on a text or three separate texts that have been merged. In fact, um, people who like to imagine Revelations as a patchwork of pre-existing extant material often make this week's reading kind of ground zero um, for doing that, for saying that there's an earlier Jewish text on which this is based. I actually don't find that compelling, but I'll point out the features of it um, as we go. Um, there's good reasons to not think of it as compelling. There's also very stupid reasons to not think of it as compelling. For example, one evangelical text I read uh, this week <laughs> says that obviously that can't be true because that would make uh, John the evangelist a liar. You're not calling John the revelator a liar, are you? <laughs> okay, um, blah, blah, blah. Last week we opened the six seals, four horsemen, the whole deal. Um, the sky rolled up like a little paper. Um, very spooky, very scary. Um, stars fell like fig trees, whatever, you know, it was, it was pretty wild. Nina, listen to Nina Simone. Um, this week, suddenly God has like a weird, like throws a flag on the field. Uh, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. 
it's interesting um, that we return to this image of the four corners of the earth. I mentioned to you last time that Zechariah has these horsemen um, that are very clearly the antecedent for John's four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they're the four horsemen to the four corners of the earth. Um, Jeremiah uh, 48, 49 also mentions like the four corners of the earth. It's a very common image. They did not think the earth had four corners. They did not think the planet was a square. (laughs) Although hilariously, New Jerusalem seems to be kind of a board cube at the end of this text. Um, It's a poetic image that is used a lot. It is still used to this day. Um, I did come across quite a lot of scholarship that talks about like how the four corners, as in the diagonals, the diagonal winds were the ones that were considered to be the bad ones, the ones that, like, coming from the southwest will, like, coming off, basically, the Sahara Desert, right, where where this is, if you're in the Mediterranean, um, is the one that will, like, dry your crops, etc. Um, I've talked about the winds before, actually, on the Milton episodes, uh, if that interests you. In fact, I've talked about... Uh, the other topic that is looming large this week, the 12 tribes of Israel before in uh, either chapter, it's either chapter 11 or chapter 12 of Paradise Lost. Um, so if you want to listen to that in greater depth than I go into this week, uh, go check out those episodes of the Paradise Lost commentary on Patreon. Um, okay, but I'm getting ahead. Uh, so there's these angels that are in charge of like keeping the winds at bay. Um, we see this a lot in Revelations and actually in a lot of apocalyptic, image, apocalyptic imagery. Um, this idea that these there's these entities who guard the calamities. Um, we'll see it again before this text is over. But I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, which is a great image. Uh, obviously rising in the east, right? Uh, I cannot tell you how many creepy prophet people have made a lot of hay out of this one (laughs) obviously it's just like the sunrise as like a hopeful moment right like that's the obvious poetic moment that is happening here it is very striking to me in spending my time with all these lords liars and lunatics who have written about this text um how often they miss that one of the reasons that images occur is because they are poetically beautiful and poetically significant. And it is amazing to me how that just seems never to occur to these boring fuddy-duddies. Okay, Uh, an angel rises with the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees, obviously, like, if you are an agrarian society, the trees are important, Uh, until we have marked the servants, literally slaves. It it is funny how almost every translation softens that. It's slaves. The slaves of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Um, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And then we get the list of the tribes. Um... I remember very distinctly being incredibly terrified by this as a child because I read it, as some other people have read it who are older and should know better, to mean (laughs) that only, of all of human history, only 144,000 people get to go to heaven. Um, 
that is obviously not true even on the face of the reading because if you even just skip past the list there is an uncountable multitude who are in in heaven in a moment um from every people tribe and race and tongue right um so what but what should we read this to mean well let's start with the ceiling um seals are important obviously in this text the seven seals that uh seal the document uh we will later get the the mark of the beast i'm sure you've heard of that even if you are the most casual non-religiously traumatized person on earth um seals are important in this text it is a text as i just mentioned that is interested in for example issues of slavery uh it is a text that is interested in who is your master who is your conqueror to whom do you belong uh and throughout human history many peoples and uh objects and cattle have been marked what kind of mark are we meant to understand this to be it's not super clear obviously first of all it is obviously a metaphorical mark um but like how is he thinking about that metaphor like what how does that metaphor work for him what is available him to him in the furniture of his mind when he thinks about someone being sealed with a mark. Well, the first place to look is probably Ezekiel, which talks about people being sealed with the mark, and it seems to be a tau, um, as in like a cross shape, or maybe even a, a, the, the X, that, you know, Jesus's first letter, right, of his name. You've probably seen that before. That That is actually mentioned in Ezekiel, and a lot of Christian thinkers like to be like, oh, the X for Jesus, right? I know it's not an X. Please, people who speak Greek, don't correct me. Um, <laughs> that's a possibility. Um, an idea I encountered while preparing for this episode that I actually find quite compelling is that he might be thinking about the way Roman soldiers were actually marked uh, as part of um, their military unit. Uh, They were tattooed quite often. Uh, Caligula also tattooed, like, people he wanted to imprison, but um, in at least some periods of the Roman Empire, soldiers were marked to indicate their loyalties. Um... There's articles about this. There's people who talk about, like, how true is this? How often did this happen? Um, Obviously, they didn't use the word tattoo. In fact, the word they used was stigma. Um, But yeah, it, it, it... that that means that what is one element, one valence that is available to John the Revelator here is uh, an idea of military marking. Who are you loyal to? And I find that compelling um, because I think that's actually the controlling metaphor for the list of the 12 tribes. Um, In fact, there are lists like this phrased this way quite often in the Hebrew Bible of how many troops from the tribe of X, from the tribe of Y, from et cetera, et cetera. This like recurrent refrain, as it is listed here, of from the tribe of whatever that I tried to replicate in the reading, um, replicates the effect of a lot of the lists in books like Judges and Kings and Chronicles and stuff where this happens. Um, 
it's a possibility. It's something worth thinking about. Also linked to that is the number a thousand, which comes up here uh, very often. A thousand, a thousand men from the tribe of whatever is a very frequent way that these numbers are figured. Um, and it is also the like maximum number of troops that a general in the uh, the armies of Israel is supposed to have under his command before you have to start like reassigning. Um, in in the older texts, um, it's an interesting idea that I find possible here, but I don't. I wouldn't bet the farm on it. Um, okay, then we have now to the list itself. Well, it says specifically one hundred forty four thousand um, sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel, and then we get the breakdown of of each of the tribes, um, and each of them have twelve thousand sealed. In them, uh, one hundred forty-four thousand is twelve times twelve uh, times a thousand, right? So we have seen the numerology of Revelations is endless and exhausting. This one is actually not hard to crack because it's one we've seen before. Twelve, obviously, here not even a metaphor, right? Because there's it is literally about the twelve tribes. We saw the the twelve plus twelve for the elders. Remember the twenty four elders around the throne. Here we're getting twelve times twelve, one hundred forty four times a thousand. A thousand is just a big number, right? Um, as I said, it kind of seems to have some kind of military valence here. Um, but the point is multitude, right? The point that (laughs) so many of these commenters seem to miss is it's a lot, right? It's as many as you can imagine in an army-like way. But it is notable and probably important to note it is a specific quantified number, um, because he literally in the next section goes out of his way to have an uncountable number. He is capable of expressing uncountability. I sometimes think that biblical scholarship overstresses the idea of like, that's the biggest number they could imagine. It's like, no, they can imagine an endless, they can imagine an infinite. Um, But he is here being really specific and precise. Okay, the 12 tribes. He has a very specific list in his head. Um, it is worth noting that at no point in the Hebrew Bible are the 12 tribes presented in a defined order. (laughs) In fact, they are presented 18 different ways in the Bible, uh, and the Revelations list does not correspond to any of them. I don't even mean the fact that some of the names are here missing or reversed or unusual, which I'll talk about in a second. I mean, literally, there's no established order. I know them because of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which again, I played Benjamin in. Um, Reuben is the eldest of the children of Israel, with Simeon and Levi the next in line. Naphtali and Issachar with Asher and Dan, Zebulun and Gad take the total to nine. Uh, Jacob, Jacob and sons, blah, 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 blah. Benjamin and Judah, which leaves only one, Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. So that's the list of 12. Um, There are several asterisks to append to this list. You may have noticed some of the names I just said are not in the Revelations list. Um, How do we renegotiate the, the list? Well, Reuben, who is the eldest of the children of Israel, <laughs> uh, is disinherited at one point because he, and this is, there are various versions of this story, 
Um, but in the more frequent version, he is said to commit adultery with Bilha. Um, Bilha is the mother of some of his other brothers. Uh, she is the handmaiden to Rachel. Um, the, the the children of Israel do not all have the same mother. They have, if you've seen The Handmaid's Tale, The Handmaid's Tale is based on this idea that, uh, is it Rachel or is it Leah? It must be Rachel. Um, it's Rachel. Uh, so he has a favorite wife, Joseph's mother. She was quite my favorite wife. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I keep referencing Joseph. It's very useful. Um, Jacob has a favorite wife, but she can't conceive for a long time. And she gives her handmaid to Jacob so that he can have children that are kind of like hers. That's the basis for Margaret Atwood's book, but it's a, a story that is in the Bible. And several of the children, in fact, I think it's Dan and Naphtali, are the children of Bilhah. But then Reuben, his eldest, um, sometimes has sex with her, sometimes gets mad and throws her mattress out of a tent, um, and is disinherited. He loses his portion. Joseph and the much younger Benjamin are uh, Jacob's favorite children because they are the children of his favorite wife. Um, and Joseph has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, and they, their portion, Joseph gets a double portion. He inherits Reuben's portion, and they're split between his two sons. Um, so in many of the standardized lists of the 12 tribes, those are the ones, Reuben excluded and Manasseh and Ephraim included. That is not the list you're looking at here. The list you're looking at here has Manasseh in it, but does not contain Ephraim, and it does not have Dan. Reuben's in the list instead. It's still 12, <laughs> but it is a configuration of 12 that is extremely unusual, and a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out why this is John's version of the 12 tribes. Um, why does Dan fall out and Manessa come in? It's confusing to do that. One very ingenious theory I saw is that Manessa was abbreviated as man and it was confused one way or the other and that it should have been Dan instead. That's not very compelling, especially given the Greek alphabet, but it's cute. Um, the other one that was extremely popular for a long time and from very early on, Hippolytus and Irenaeus talk about this, is that Dan is excluded because Dan is known to be idolatrous. Dan, the tribe of Dan several times falls into idolatry, um, and the idea here is that it is irredeemable and has lost its portion. And in fact, the larger theory of this is that just as Jesus is uh, the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, is from the tribe of Judah, which you'll notice is first in the list here. It is not Reuben, which is what you'd expect, the eldest. Um, it's Judah. Just as Jesus is from Judah, the Antichrist <laughs> is from Dan. And so Dan doesn't make the cut. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't really give you a good explanation for why one of Joseph's sons makes the list and the other doesn't, but there it is. Now, zooming out from this, it is worth thinking about what this is doing. And what this is doing, I think quite visibly here, and I think very clearly part of the project we've been tracking on this podcast, is showing just how Jewish 
John's apocalypse here is. He is thinking about how the end times, the apocalypse which he is expressing, will make manifest the extremely specifically Jewish character of Christianity, that these are the special elect. And who are the special elect? The people linked genetically to the 12 tribes of Israel. And that point is very explicit and clear here. And if it wasn't explicit and clear, it will become even clearer when he shows us the righteous Gentiles in a moment after this. Um, I say that because so much has been done to metaphorize this and to make this about, you know, the true Jewish people are the Christians who are loyal. His point is very, very clearly here that these are the people who are descended from these tribes, specifically and genetically. Um, that is worth thinking about also because these tribes are notoriously, quote-unquote, lost. Um, Judah in the south, the, the land that is Judah's in the south, becomes the southern kingdom uh, where Jerusalem is. And the north, which is the land mostly of Benjamin, um, becomes the, the northern kingdom, Israel, and they merge um, into the unified kingdom that is then conquered several times, but at this point by the Romans, right? Um, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian exile, cause the quote-unquote loss of the other tribes. Um, you've heard this many times expressed by many crackpots uh, a lot of ways, I'm sure. <laughs> uh and John's vision here is that God knows where those people are and will summon them back, and they will be marked in this way. They have moved out of history, but not out of God's mind, right? Um, there are versions of this where they're like, again, check out the Milton episode if you want to see some of the kookier versions, including like, obviously they went to North America. They sailed across the sea, right, and became uh, the people there that Jesus went to hang out with after his resurrection, um, the, the real fact of the matter is that they intermarried with the various kingdoms and nations around them. Um, they were, in fact, part of the very explicit, I mean, the Babylonian captivity is a form of genocide, right? It is, it is a cultural genocide, it is an attempt to efface their Jewish connection from them. But we should also recognize these things also happen, um quite naturally too, right? People just, apostasy happens. I'm, my family is probably Jewish historically. Um, we know that because of certain genetic markers that my mother's disease has. Um, at some point, they that didn't happen anymore. You know, that his, we've seen in John his um, insistence on keeping up that purity. And I think that this here is a manifestation of that. Um, the flip side, as there always is in a text like this, <laughs> is how often this has been used for crazy anti-Semitic purposes. And that one, the math of that I have to explain. But you've seen it at work. You see it particularly at work right now in America. Um, the Book of Revelation's insistence on this kind of sacralized remnant of Judaism has very real and lasting current um, effects on world politics and specifically American world politics. American evangelicism is obsessed with the fact of this 
this particular section especially and some to come that there must always be some remnant of Judaism that is preserved for the end times and that that remnant must be allowed to rebuild their kingdom and rebuild Jerusalem to affect those end times. There is, in fact, a kind of um, accelerationist bent to some American politics about this, that um, how great would it be if we could trigger Jesus's return by, for example, insisting upon um, and giving aid to these countries and these far-right movements, too, um, it is always, it strikes people from the outside as an odd alliance when they don't understand that this text kind of has become the ground of that. Um, okay, the second half of the reading um, is the part that actually kind of throws that into even more stark relief, uh, which is the section that is very clearly about the people who aren't Jewish, who are still righteous and who have been good, we might say, Christians, a word that this text does not use. <laughs> After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Um, that's very clearly supposed to be the other people, right? Like, there was the Jewish people, and now it's the other good people, right? Um, robed in white with palm branches in their hand. The palm is a symbol of victory, a, a very common symbol we've been seeing in this text, right? Like, it's obsessed with victory and conquest, and this is one of them. Um... But palm branch, I mean, you've seen this even again, like if all you've seen is Jesus Christ Superstar, you've seen the Palm Sunday sequence, right? Like palms are something you wave at a procession. They are a key feature in, for example, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is a fall festival, right? Where you're celebrating the, the bringing in of the harvest. Um, I had the very good fortune while I was in New York for FlameCon to visit uh, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um it is a shock. St. John the Divine is another name for the dude we've been doing a podcast about for a long time, the evangelist and also the revelator, because by the in the logic of the cathedral, which is a very old Christian logic, this is all the same guy. Um, it is devoted to him. It is, I think, one of the most strangely empty churches. It feels like it is a congregation of nothing uh, when we went. And you must see it. If you have a chance to visit New York, if you are a person who listens to this podcast, when you're there, go see the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, you will be struck, first of all, by how much it is obsessed with the imagery from the book of revelations outside you will see jesus in front of the seven lampstands and under him you will see the 24 elders or around him you see the 24 elders and then under his feet you will see this multitude specifically robed in white holding palm branches um we are going to get to the section where it explains who they are and that they quote passed through tribulation that is very often read as a martyrdom. It is the period of distress people talk about in the book of Revelations, which means that if you see a, a depiction of a saint and you know nothing about them, but you see they're holding a palm branch, you know they're a martyr. 
martyrs are usually depicted with palm branches, and it's because of this reading, because Revelation says that the people who pass through tribulation will have a palm branch <laughs> in heaven. So if you're ever in a cathedral and you're like, well, I don't know who that is, but they're holding a thingy, they probably died bloody somehow. Um... Okay, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There is a lot of work that again says that this is a distortion, a parody, um, a remix of a common uh, Roman refrain about the emperor. Um, salvation belongs to the emperor. So it is this kind of like, I, I this week uh, bought the Pablo, I don't know if it's Richard or Richard, the Apocalypse of People's Commentary on the Book of Revelation. Um, great book, really good, uh, a really great, like, socialist reading of the book of Revelation. It's been really a pleasure to read through it, and he talks specifically about um, the way this is uh, the the throng of humanity realizing how completely it has been betrayed by um, the systems that are supposed to have helped it. Like, it's it's this is a revelatory moment when it proclaims this. I should also mention, like, um, beyond St. John the Divine, not just is obsessed with the images of Revelation, it's also, like, a really fascinating, mostly very progressive space, um, incredibly queer-inclusive. Um, it has a statue, for example, of a figure it calls Christa, which is a crucified Christ who is obviously feminized. His body, he has, she has breasts. Um, she's naked and is visibly feminine in her presentation. It also has the Keith Haring altarpiece, his last work, um, this really beautiful um, uh, silver altarpiece done by Keith Haring, commissioned uh, as he was dying. Um, it also has some, I would call, politically dicey images, including, like, a Christ who is, like, dealing with the World Trade Center attack and his hands are being pierced by the airplanes. Um, it has images of Hillary Clinton speaking in it. Uh, it is an interesting place uh, full of amazing relics that I think you should all check out if you get a chance. I even took a picture of my book with it uh, there in the, the cathedral because it just like uh, just really fascinated me. And it's really fun. You know, I'm I'm as we all know, I'm a damaged Catholic. I love reading a cathedral and being like, oh, look, the statue's doing the thing. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, these people start singing, and all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It will not surprise you to say that there are seven things in that list, what is kind of surprising is six of the seven are the same as the last time they did this. This is technically called the doxology, right? Like this little amen, amen, they're, they're, they're praying. Um, again, this temple space in heaven has this bizarre timelessness effect to it. Um, then this weird exchange <laughs> between one of the elders and John. Again, like they can't be apostles because like, they would know him, right, if we thought of him as being an evangelist. Um, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Uh, <laughs> it's actually a very common thing in a lot of apocalypses, but I find it very cute. Um, he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Uh, the great ordeal, um, the great distress. A lot of apocalyptic preacher types have tried to be like, oh, this is going to be the specific moment. Um, I, I take the people's commentary. I appreciate it pointing out like, no, the point is like this is history itself. The great ordeal is history. This is all times. Um, good little note. Good book. You should read it. Um, and then one of my favorite images, there's two really wonderful uh, paradoxes in in this week's reading, and this is one of them. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Washing in robes, washing their robes to make them white in blood. It's such like a staggeringly beautiful, weird image. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> for this reason they are before the throne of god and worship him day and night within his temple and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them they will hunger no more and thirst no more the sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne again another amazing paradox the lamb will be their shepherd isn't that amazing <laughs> the lamb will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. You can feel Psalm 23 is on his mind here as he turns it into this weird, wonderful, apocalyptic image of the lamb as the shepherd. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that amazing? God, what a text. Um, okay, next week, the seventh seal. Uh, everything goes cuckoo bananas. Um, thank you so much. As I mentioned, uh, Dayspring is now available for ordering pre-order. It comes out Easter 2024, um, which I am deeply delighted about as a date for things to come out. Uh, I am about to turn to the Patreon to, uh, tackle the reader questions there. They're really great this week, so check that out. Um, and before the reading for next week drops, I will have a surprise, uh, an interview with one of our listeners about their book, which is extremely wonderful. Um, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye, everybody. <laughs>